Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today's book is Women, Race, and Class by Angela Davis. When I first started reading this book one day, I left it out accidentally on the kitchen table. And a person I know who is a generation older than I am walked past the kitchen table and saw it and kind of raised her eyebrows and said, oh, Angela Davis, you're reading Angela Davis. So I quickly grabbed the book and stuffed it into my bag and kind of said, yeah, I'm reading Angela Davis and like walked away really quick. I shouldn't have done that no matter how controversial the book might have been. But the truth is, once I actually read the book, I realized that there was nothing in the book that I should have been worried about anyway. It's just a history book. And it's actually a really interesting really readable history book and a hugely important contribution to American history because it foregrounds and places as central the experience of African-American women. Angela Davis does continue to be a controversial figure, though, and so I'm really excited to discuss her life and to discuss the ideas that she presents in this book with my reading partner, Brianna Jovan. Welcome, Brianna. Thanks for being here. Hey, Amy. Thank you for having me. So second only to me, I think, Brianna, you know Breaking Down Patriarchy better than anyone else in the world. Um, <laughs> Brianna Jovan is our editor at Breaking Down Patriarchy. So she has been working tirelessly behind the scenes, listening to every word of every episode, sometimes multiple times, um, to get all of these in- episodes just edited perfectly and We know each other really well by now, having worked together. And Brianna, you have just been an absolute joy to work with. So professional, so smart, so kind. And we've worked through some, you know, changes in the project. And at every step of the way, I just am so impressed with you and so grateful to know you. So super, super excited that you agreed to do an episode with me. And I feel like kind of we're teammates in this project. So this is true. This is true. (laughs) (laughs) So if you could, could you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're from? You know the drill. Just um, acquaint us with with who you are and some of the projects that you're working on, too, because I think those are really exciting, too. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So hi, ladies and gents. I'm Brianna Javon, and I am the creator of What's Good, the podcast. Um, Initially, my goal was to climb up the corporate ladder, but God told me something totally different. (laughs) I'm from Cedar Hill, Texas, and graduated from Cedar Hill High School. From there, I went to Texas Southern University in Houston. I followed my best friend. She was like, hey, it's amazing, Bree. Come on out here. So I was like, hey, why not? She's out there. I'm going to be by myself. (laughs) And so I was just living the life and had a great time until one day I did get a phone call because I stayed in Houston a year later. I did get a phone call from my mom and she asked me, Brie, what's plan B? Like, what's going on? You know, are you going to stay out there forever? Like, what's life after college? And to be honest, I never thought about it. I got the sales job, even though I have an accounting degree. That's what I graduated with as far as my bachelor's. But, I, you know, what's, what we were taught, you go to school, go to college, and get your dream job. But my mom was like, is that really fulfilling? So when she asked me that, I was like, you know what? Let me deep dive and figure that out. So after praying and things of that nature, because there were some things going on at home as well. My granny passed away. Her sister, which also raised me, she passed away. And so it was a spiritual moment. I asked God for a sign. 
And literally, Amy, I'm not lying. I exit the highway in Houston, Texas, and there is a street that says Cedar Hill. Hmm. So I took that as get your butt back home. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up going home within the first month of me being home. I decided to go back to school to get my MBA at Grand Canyon University. I thought about it like a switch in my head instead of going back for accounting because I knew I didn't want to do accounting. My mom was in, is in accounting. My cousins, they're in accounting. So I was like, only did it because of them. <laughs> so from there, I was like, what do I want to do as Brianna? So I decided to get an MBA because I knew I wanted to own a business one day. Hmm. So at that point, um, of course, I'm at home. I'm staying at home, found me a job at ADP. And as I was at ADP, I found an internship in Los Angeles, California. Now, in um, college, everybody knows, knew me as Brianna always dressing up. She's so cute, this, this, and that. So I was like, maybe I should do fashion. And this goes back to finding my, you know, my fulfillment in life. So I was like, why don't I do an internship? Um, in, yeah, internship in fashion. So I did it. I quit my job and I legit started all over. And I think that was the moment in my life that whatever I wanted to do, if God gives me the blessing, all I have to do is just walk in that journey. Mm -hmm. And so that was like a really, really big thing for me. So moving forward to where I am presently, um, after living my life in Los Angeles, I decided that it was time for me to come back home officially and get it together. Um, like I mentioned, it was just a different mindset of just how God was placing me in different areas in my life because I was wanting to figure out what fulfills me. I didn't want to do the whole thing of traditional school, work, uh, college and things of that nature, it was like, Brianna, what do you want to do? So people who know me, they're like, you just a go in the wind girl, but I'm legit just living life to figure out what is my purpose here. Hmm. So with that being stated, of course, I had to get a new job. I started working at Geico back in the corporate setting. And for some reason, I had a vision of me back in college um, starting a radio station. I wanted to do it because there were so many of us. And as you know, Amy, just being around your college friends, um, everybody is trying to figure out things. We're like finding out how creative we are. People are making clothing brands or actually being fashion designers. It was just mm -hmm. so many fantastic people around me. So I was like, if we have amazing conversations behind closed doors about what we want to do in life and you guys are you're doing it now, y'all just want to be bigger in the future. I can just imagine what that radio station would be in, you know, what mm -hmm. it would look like. <laughs> so um, which is even more crazy is while I was here, the vision was beyond just my community. What is Dallas about? What is the community of Dallas? And so that's how What's Good podcast came about. Literally, I'm talking to people in the, um, the local community. I don't like saying small businesses, more so of independent businesses. Mm -hmm. How you guys got to where you are today, um, where are those peaks and valleys People can learn from those. And that's mm -hmm. why I love autobiographies. I feel like a lot of things, as far as the foundation is there for people, we just have to learn from other people's mistakes so we don't have to do them. Mm -hmm. Because if you learn your history, if you learn um, even the legacy of your family, we can learn so much so we can do things differently for the future. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was the foundation of what's good. Like, what's good, Dallas? For who's the creatives here? Who are the entrepreneurs here? 
what's going on here to where I can help people that don't know what's going on in Dallas. Let's get these people more exposure. Let's get these people to come together and connect because there may be somebody on the podcast that creates their own products. They may have bad allergies and can't use those other products in the stores. Mm -hmm. So why not connect those two together? You get a new customer and now you have a product that you can actually use on yourself. Pretty much I feel amazing now doing what I do. And then on top of that, since I've been a podcaster for over two years now, I've been able to teach other people how to podcast. And now I'm using my skills. Like Amy mentioned, I'm helping edit for other clients, um, doing some marketing for some people, um, you know, teaching from the bottom up on how to start a podcast. It's just been amazing only because I was searching to figure out who's Brianna what are you doing here and how can we execute the mission? And so I think it's very important. You know, it starts from history. Talk to your family, talk to your friends, you know, pray about it, journal. I feel like it's very important and it really helped me to where I am today. Mm, awesome. I loved hearing all about that. There was a lot in there that you and I have never talked about and it was really neat to know that history. And and listeners really have to check out. It's so cool. What's Good Podcast is the name of your podcast. And um, yes. I love how you are bringing all of these uplifting stories. You're talking about business, which is, you know, mm -hmm. obviously like a big passion for you and something that you're interested in. And yeah. I love the, just the optimistic and light filled way that you're, you know, like bettering your community and doing something you love. I think it's so awesome. Thank you. And, and, and like you said, I mean, that's how we met is that I was listening or I was looking for someone to help me as I was starting the podcast. So you've been critical, not just in editing, but also helping me visualize the podcast, how it would work and um, doing social media and stuff. So highly recommend <laughs> Brianna Jovan. And you have Instagram and Facebook and stuff, right? You're all over social media. I'm yes. Assuming. Just type in Brianna Jovan. You'll find me. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Okay, so this is where, as you know, this is where I usually ask my guests what breaking down patriarchy means to them. And so, like I said, this will be a different question for you since you've literally heard every second of every episode. <laughs> um, but like, what has it been like for you to, to take on this project and really get down into these details? Had you ever studied patriarchy before the podcast? Or um, yeah, just kind of answer that question however you want, Brianna. Will do. So the podcast itself has been an eye-opening experience from the first time we met and you told me your vision for it. I was like, you know what? I never even thought about patriarchy, matriarchy, none of that stuff, really. And so mm -hmm. I'm a researcher, me having two degrees, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mm -hmm. automatically just start deep diving and just figuring out a little bit more before I just jump into a situation. But growing up in a Baptist household, my grandmother, she pretty much showed me what it looked like to tend to your family while also doing everything that you want to do in life as well. And so when I was thinking about it, I was like, maybe that's why I wasn't ever introduced to it because I never really saw it as a young child. Um, my grandmother, she grew up in Milford, Texas, for people that don't know it's the country, like it's the country, country. <laughs> and she legit left because she had, it's 14 of them, seven boys and seven girls. She literally left the country um, and went to Prairie View University, which is in Prairie View, Texas, and she got her degree. And so um, her husband was very supportive of her. I believe he stayed behind, but later came to the city because 
everybody loved the country, right? That's If that's all you know, that's all you know. <laughs> but she ended up getting him to come to the city with her, which was awesome to me because he supported her in that. But as I was reading and we were talking about this question, she just reminded me of the Bible verse, um, Proverbs 31. And I'm going to go ahead and read the scripture for you guys. Okay. Okay. So it's Proverbs 31. I'm going to start at a wife of noble character who can find she is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the rewards she has earned and her works bring her praise at the city gate. So growing up, that was pretty much my grandmother. Like to this day, we still have all of her curtains up on her windows. <laughs> she made garments for my mom in a fashion show. She created my um, cousin's wedding dress. And all while, if anything happened in the family, that's who they would call. So for me, I never really saw patriarchy. Even within my uh, my own household with my mom and dad, my dad would legit come home from payday and slide my mom his paycheck. Like, you take care of the bills. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one point where my mom went on a vacation. And um, of course, he didn't know how to do my hair. So uh, he just put on a hat with some terrible terrible, terrible ponytails. And we had to go to church. And my aunties was like, no, go ahead and bring baby over here so we can get her hair done. And so that was my experience. But of course, Mm -hmm. I dealt with it in um, corporate setting. And we'll talk about that later. But before me, you talked about it. That was just all I knew. You know, as far as like the husband and the wife and gender roles and things of that nature, it was pretty much equivalent. You know, you have a role, you have a role and we come together and just make this the best production. And when me and you discussed it, I was like, that is freaking amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And so other than that, as far as like one of the episodes that really struck me was the one with uh, Sojourner Truth. And I believe it was with Raina that was the guest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As mentioned earlier, um... 
I felt so bad that I did not know as much about Sojourner Truth until I heard that episode. And then I was like, okay, I need more Like at this point. like Who else and who was all a part of this movement with her? I need to know a little bit more about her childhood. It was just so much and it laid the foundation for me to do that. And for people that's listening, I can't speak for everybody, but I know that's what the podcast does for me with every episode. It makes me just want more because I... I just did not know about this until you introduced these things to us. And so even with Raina explaining some of her story facing racism, Amy, I must say that was another thing that really caught me about you was how you supported her. It really, really, really meant the world to me because there is not a lot of friends that would do that. If they never gone through racism or sexism or classism or classism or any of the isms, they're like, I don't really know how to support. But what you did, I thought it was amazing because you were just there for her. And from there, I was like, I love me some Amy. I'm going to be with her till the wheels fall off. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just amazing. So me just listening to Raina, learning more about Sojourner Truth. And then I learned a little bit more about the writers from social media, um, the different posts that we had created. I just thought that it was just great to learn so, 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 so much. And I was just like, I just need more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that means that means the world to me. Brie, thank you. Thanks mm-hmm. for saying that. And Raina, I mean, isn't she just incredible? All of our readers have just been so incredible, including you. Um, you. But yeah, I have to say, as you know, I mean, I hope all of our listeners really have felt this. This is a learning journey for me too. So I'm like, I get to be the one that's bringing these books to everybody. But as I keep emphasizing, it's the first time that I'm reading them too, right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a journey that we're all going on together. And I just feel so honored to have, you know, listeners and and you and other reading partners and you working with me on the project. So thanks for sharing all of that. Okay, so let's move on to introducing our author, Angela Davis. And Brianna, this is so cool too, because you're the one who added this book to the reading list. Um, you had told me that you would like to learn more about Angela Davis, and I had never read her either. And so this was your suggestion, and I'm so, so glad that you added this book to the lineup. And I really benefited from learning. We you know, we did our, our normal research into the author, and we're going to share kind of a long biography of Angela Davis because she is just so interesting. So could you start us off by telling, we'll take turns, and Brianna, if you can take the first half of Davis's life, and then I'll take the second half. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. And I agree. Um, before I start reading the bio, I agree. Um, I know I told you initially, I always knew about Angela Davis. So when this opportunity was given, I was like, I got to jump on it. So thank you for inviting me. And, you know, with this book, I'm so excited for us to talk about it today. So let's go ahead and jump into the bio. Angela Davis was born on January 26, 1944, in Birmingham, Alabama, and we're going to listen to a clip of her talking about her childhood. This is in response to a reporter asking her if she condones violence. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. I remember from from the time I was very small, I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. 
I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we, we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like, uh, 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 niggers have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, f my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol? I, you know, we heard about the bombing, and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down, and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organized themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, uh, I just, uh, I just find it incredible, it, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Davis attended a segregated black elementary school, and Angela's mother, Sally Bell Davis, was a national officer and leading organizer of the Southern Negro Youth Congress, an organization influenced by the Communist Party and aimed at building alliances among African Americans in the South. Davis grew up surrounded by communists, organizers, and thinkers who significantly influenced her intellectual development. Other early influences were her church youth group and Sunday school, which she attended regularly. She also attributes much of her political involvement to the Girl Scouts of the United States of America, which she loved as a child and in which she marched and picked to protest racial segregation in Birmingham. By her junior year of high school, Davis had been accepted by an American Friends Service Committee Quaker program that placed Black students from the South in integrated schools in the North. So she chose Elizabeth Earn High School in Greenwich Village and moved to New York. Davis was awarded a scholarship to Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, where Polly Murray would become a professor right after Davis graduated. At Brandeis, she was one of the three Black students in her class. She encountered the philosopher Herbert Marcuse, at a rally during the Cuban Missile Crisis and became his student. She later said, Herbert Marcuse taught me that it was possible to be an academic, an activist, a scholar, and a revolutionary. She worked part-time to earn enough money to travel to France and Switzerland and attended the 8th World Festival of Youth and Students in Helsinki, which was a communist-sponsored festival, and she returned home in 1963 to an FBI interview about her attendance there. In 1965, she graduated magna cum laude and then went to Germany to continue studying, and when she returned to the U.S., she was very interested in the Black Panther Party. 
and the transformation of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, to all, well, to an all-Black organization. Davis earned a master's degree from the University of California, San Diego, in 1968, and then a doctorate in philosophy at the Humboldt University in East Berlin. Beginning in 1969, Davis was an acting assistant professor in the philosophy department at UCLA. Although both Princeton and Swarthmore had tried to recruit her, she was known as a radical feminist and activist, a member of the Communist Party, and affiliate of the Los Angeles chapter of the Black Panther Party. In 1969, the University of California initiated a policy against hiring communists, and at their September 19, 1969 meeting, the Board of Regents fired Davis because of her membership in the party, urged by Californian Governor Ronald Reagan. There followed a back and forth where a judge determined that she couldn't be fired because of her political affiliation, but then the regents fired her again for the inflammatory language, quote-unquote, she had used in several of her speeches. In 1970, an event occurred that would change Davis' life forever. A heavily armed 17-year-old African-American high school student named Jonathan Jackson went into a courtroom in Marin County, California, where Black defendants were on trial. He armed the defendants and took the judge, the prosecutor, and three female jurors as his hostages. As Jackson transported the hostages and the two Black defendants away from the courtroom, one of the defendants, James McLean, shot at the police, and the police returned fire. The judge and the three Black men were killed, and one of the jurors and the prosecutors were injured. It was soon discovered that Angela Davis had purchased several other firearms Jackson used in the attack, including the shotgun used to shoot the judge, which she bought at a San Francisco pawn shop two days before the incident. She was also found to have been corresponding with one of the inmates involved. Davis was charged with aggravated kidnapping and first-degree murder in the death of Judge Harold Haley, and a warrant was issued for her arrest. No one could find her, and four days after the warrant was issued, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover listed Davis on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitive list. So Davis became a fugitive and fled from California. And according to her autobiography, during this time, she hid in a friend's home and moved at night. On October 13, 1970, FBI agents found her in New York City and President Richard M. Nixon congratulated the FBI on its capture of the dangerous terrorist Angela Davis. While being held in the women's detention center, Davis was initially separated from other prisoners, and for the time, she was held in solitary confinement. Across the nations, thousands of people began organizing and movement to gain her release. In New York City, Black writers formed a committee called the Black People in Defense of Angela Davis, and by February of 1971, more than 200 local committees in the United States in 67 in foreign countries, worked to free Davis from prison. John Lennon and Yoko Ono contributed to this campaign with the song Angela. In 1972, after a 16-month incarceration, the state allowed her release on bail from the county jail. 
On February 23, 1972, her $100,000 bill was paid by Roger Mc McAfee, who was a 33-year-old white alfalfa former from Fresno, California, and the United Presbyterian Church paid some of her legal defense expenses as well. The trial was moved to Santa Clara County, and after 13 hours of deliberations, the all-white jury returned a verdict of not guilty. So I had never heard of any of that before, and, and hearing that um, really interesting history. It was before my lifetime, but I can see definitely why Angela Davis is such a controversial figure, right? If you had lived through that time when that had been in the news, that she was possibly, you know, responsible for providing weapons for this very dramatic, like storming the courtroom, killing a judge. I mean, and then she was what considered by the president to be a dangerous terrorist. I mean, it's just crazy. Also, I have to point out that that just shatters stereotypes, doesn't it, Brianna? That yes. the person that posted her bail was a 33-year-old white alfalfa farmer <laughs> from Fresno. I, I was so surprised that that's who posted bail, <laughs> yes. and that it was I think that's a amazing church as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. I do too. Mm -hmm. I do too. So interesting. Okay, I'll continue with some of the later history. So. Um, Davis was a celebrity, as, as you know, is not surprising. She was a celebrity in communist Cuba. She spoke at a rally there, and the crowd was so enthusiastic that she could barely speak over the cheering. In August 1972, Davis visit, visited the USSR, and she received an honorary doctorate from Moscow State University. In 1979, she was awarded the Lenin Peace Prize from the Soviet Union. She visited Moscow later that month to accept the prize where she praised the glorious name of Lenin and the Great October Revolution. She also visited the Berlin Wall where she laid flowers at the memorial for Reinhold Huhn, who was an East German guard who had been killed by a man who was trying to escape with his family across the border of East Berlin in 1962. And Davis said, quote, we mourn the deaths of the border guards who sacrificed their lives for the protection of their socialist homeland. End quote. And she also said, quote, when we return to the USA, we shall undertake to tell our people the truth about the true function of this border. End quote. This is blowing my mind. I don't know about you, Brianna, but I have never heard another side of that history before. I mean, and this, so Davis is like really, truly um, a devout communist. Yes. Um, and I would be interested to hear what she thinks about Germany now with all of this hindsight, you know, and what she thinks about the USSR now that it's, you know, 40 years after all of this happened. But mm -hmm. anyway, to go on, Davis was a lecturer at the Claremont Black Studies Center at the Claremont Colleges in 1975. I thought this was interesting that attendance at the course she taught was limited to, to 26 students out of more than 5,000 on campus, and she was forced to teach in secret because alumni benefactors didn't want her to indoctrinate the general student population with communist thought. College trustees made arrangements to minimize her appearance on campus, limiting her seminars to Friday evenings and Saturdays when campus activity was low. And her classes had to move from one classroom to another um, so that no one would ever know where she was going to be teaching. And the students were sworn to secrecy that they were in her class. 
Davis also taught a women's studies course at the San Francisco Art Institute in 1978, and she was a professor of ethnic studies at the San Francisco State University in the 1980s. She was a professor in the History of Consciousness and Feminist Studies departments at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and Rutgers University um, from 1991 to 2008, and since then she's been a distinguished professor emerita. Interestingly, she left the Communist Party in 1991, and she founded the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. And Davis said that she and others who had circulated a petition about the need to democratize the the structures of governance of the party were not allowed to run for national office. And she felt, in a sense, that she was invited to leave the Communist Party. So she did. Davis is a major figure in the prison abolition movement. She is called the United States prison system, the prison industrial complex, and she was one of the founders of Critical Resistance, which is a national grassroots organization dedicated to building a movement to abolish the prison system. In recent works, she's argued that the prison system resembles a new form of slavery, pointing to the disproportionate share of the African-American population who are incarcerated. As an alternative to prison, Davis advocates focusing social efforts on education and building engaged communities to solve various social problems that are now handled through state punishment. One last thing is that um, Angela Davis was an honorary co-chair of the January 21st, 2017 Women's March on Washington, which occurred the day after President Trump's inauguration. And the organizer's decision to make her a featured speaker was um, praised by many, but also criticized by some people. Um, And there was a journalist named Kathy Young who wrote that Davis's, quote, long record of support for political violence in the United States and the worst of human rights abusers abroad, end quote, undermined the whole women's march. So Angela Davis does continue to be a very controversial figure. And one last thing before we get to her book, um, we can't mention Angela Davis without talking about her hair, right? It, um, she's like That's an true. icon, and right, and and it's like become almost a um, not a meme, but like if you picture Angela Davis, it's just there's there's been so much art that uses that image of her in the seventies with her very, very exaggerated Afro hairstyle. Um, mm-hmm. And she has said, too, that she's like, I don't like being reduced to just my hairstyle. But it was a really big deal for women to wear their hair naturally in the late 60s and 70s. And so she really did become the the icon for that of, you know, this political empowered act of wearing her hair, but not just like not just unstraightened and natural, but really, really exaggerated. And so I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit, Brie, and tell us more about Angela Davis's hair. Yes, indeed. So before we talk about this article I found, um, what's so crazy now, Amy, there's so many songs nowadays about hair. Um, mm. You have Solange, um, I, well, what's Solange? Don't Touch My Hair, N-E-R-E, mm. I'm Not My Hair. So it's just so funny uh, when I was reading this and just thinking about the presence of Angela Davis. I'm a natural girl myself, so mm-hmm. it just reminded me as far as the confidence when it comes to Afrocentric hairstyles, the bantu knots, just 
allowing your hair to do what it does. So anyway, mm. <laughs> let's I get to it. an article um, that I found online that explains it this way. Quote, when captured slaves were first brought to America during the 15th century, their hair was forcefully shaved off in an effort to strip them of their sense of cultural identity. Even after gaining emancipation, Black people steered away from letting their hair grow out as biology intended. When Madam C.J. Walker patented the hot comb during the Reconstruction era, scores of Black women took to turning their kink and curls into straight hair often hoping metamorphosis would help them assimilate into white society. Even now, in many places, natural hair is seen as inappropriate and unprofessional. So Angela Davis not only let her hair grow naturally, but let it grow huge. It was a powerful political statement. And I have a quote from Lori L. Tharps, who is the co-author of Hair Story, Untangling the Roots of Black Hair in America. She said, quote, our hair was a physical manifestation of our rebellion. The right to wear our hair the way it grows out of our heads, saying to the establishment, accept us and appreciate us for who we are. Stop expecting us to assimilate or subjugate ourselves to make you comfortable. Unquote. So when I was just thinking, as I mentioned, I'm a natural ground myself. I've dealt with racism in my life, and one relatable to this topic was my own natural hair. What's even more funny about the situation is that it happened in Los Angeles, where I thought it would happen more in the South than anywhere else. At the time, I had cut my perm off and decided to wear my hair from the root with no chemical. Before I did it, many people warned me when I was working at ADP that when I cut off my hair, it was going to be a lot of confidence um, that I was going to grow into um, joy and just me feeling free and liberated for me to do what I want to do. Within the natural hair community, I was rocking a hairstyle called TWA, which means a teeny weeny afro. <laughs> 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 like I was legit bald like I had really like a low fade <laughs> it was really really low and so with that being stated I thought I was going to be cute I had this new little fashion sense new image of myself so I thought I was going to go to Los Angeles and be too hot to trot right <laughs> during the program I stayed at a local college and my roommates were from all over for an example one was from Philadelphia Canada and one was from Columbia one of the girls had connected to this social app. I don't, I, forget, I don't know if it was POF. It was one of those social apps, but she connected with a club promoter. We went and met him at this club called One Oak. And from there, you know, he we was having champagne and things of that nature of that nature and he was telling me to take the pictures and you can kind of tell sometimes like you may for, like for me, sometimes I'm like, okay, maybe you may be reaching or thinking too hard into the situation. So I was like, okay, don't worry about it. But he was giving me the camera to take photos of him and my roommates. Mm. And so it felt to me that he wanted to leave me out purposely. Mm. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'm making up stuff, right? So later, like I mentioned, we went to One Oak and we were all getting our RDs out. So as we were getting our RDs out, because he was telling us, like, he was, we were behind him. He was a friend of us, of course, being the club promoter, trying to, to, you know, walk us in. He legit puts his hand out and tells me, wait, you stay, you stay here. Somebody else is going to come out here and come get you. So at that point, it was confirmation, like, 
okay, I see what this is. <laughs> oh, I see no. exactly what this is. And me saying it in my head in my roommate, the one I was from Philadelphia, I love her. Shout out to Lauren if she listens to this. Um, she turned around and looked at me and just started bawling. And it was a sad situation because I've never gone through that. There was another security guy, which was black. I was like, I guess I got to walk in with the black person. Um, He came out and got me. And so my roommate was like, I'm not going to leave you out here. So she walked in there with me. Me being me, Mm. I didn't want to go into his section. At this point, Mm. I know you're disrespecting me. So Mm. why would I feed into it at this point? And so I just went to another part of the club. And what really kind of hurt me is that it was a reminder because people were still walking up to me like, I saw what was going on outside. So it was just confirmation on top of confirmation that that's Mm. what was happening. Because I tried not to go straight into, oh, they don't like me because I'm Black. You know, Mm -hmm. I try not to go straight into that. But when you see in one scenario, it's just a whole environment that's happening around you. It really hurt me. And so Mm -hmm. when it came to my hair, when it came to my skin color, I just felt out place from the very beginning meeting this gentleman. And that's why to this day, even though my hair is much longer than what it was before, I'm never probably going to get a perm in my life. I am very happy with the skin that I am. I'm very happy with my curly, kinky hair. (laughs) As the Mm -hmm. quote was mentioned earlier, I'm just happy to be where I'm at. And I feel like now learning um, this part of my life, when the lady told me from ADP, it's going to bring you confidence. I think that's where the confidence comes from because it's not accepted everywhere with the curly kinky hair and things of that nature. Everybody wants to do the perm. Everybody wants to do the um, the extensions. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for me in this journey, it just brings me so much confidence because I can walk out and just be myself. And so when I think about Angela Davis, it gives me strength to actually continue my natural hair journey. It may not please others. This is how I want to wear my hair because I'm comfortable with the skin that I'm in. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, Brie. I'm, I am so sad that that happened to you. I just, my heart was just, just sank when you were describing that situation. I just feel terrible. And one thing I, that you said at the very beginning of it is that you said it was so interesting that it was in Los Angeles, like you'd expect that maybe in the South, but then like to encounter that in California is just more of a gut punch. And I'm just going to throw out a book that I read a couple of years ago for listeners, if you're interested. It's called A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. It really highlights the racism of the North and and the, you know, quote unquote, progressive cities like Boston and New York and Los Angeles and um, just the structural racism that that exists here. And, and that's a really, really important thing, I think, for people who have grown up or lived all our lives in the North, and especially for white listeners to read that book. It was, um, it really expanded my understanding of that. Anyway, thanks, Brie. And again, I'm, I'm so sorry. And also so inspired by you and your attitude about not letting that define you and just have it like strengthen you even more. I'm just really inspired by you. Thank you. Um, 
So shall we start with our um, parts of the book that we want to highlight? I think that you have the very first quote. So do you want to just dive in? Yes, I'm excited for us to talk about some of the quotes um, from the book. They were just amazing. So let's get into it. The first one is from chapter nine, Working Women, Black Women, and the History of the Suffrage Movement. And this is on page 140. Quote, woman was the test, but not every woman seemed to qualify. Black women, of course, were virtually invisible within the protracted campaign for women's suffrage. As for white working women, the suffrage leaders were probably impressed at first by the organizing efforts and militancy of their working class sisters. But as it turned out, the working women themselves did not enthusiastically embrace the cause of women's suffrage. Unquote. So I wanted to speak about this quote because it is something that's still actually happening today. When you type women's suffrage in Google and look at the photos, they are mostly white women and not many women of color being represented as if we didn't matter, unfortunately. Um, As I was doing the research for this, just, you know, diving deep into the quote itself, I definitely did do that. Um, Just typing in women's suffrage, going into the articles and just looking at the photos. I was like, where are we at? (laughs) What's going on? For another example, the National American Women's Suffrage Association, they actually prevented Black women from attending their conventions. This caused Black women to create their own organizations. For an example, National Association of Color Women. But the main focus was universal suffrage, not anyone being left out. This was really sad for me to read about this because Black women were doing everything in their power to be heard. They held church meetings and worked at schools and colleges to build a broader platform for themselves. With having a double whammy of being Black and being a woman, it lessened their chance of being heard, although they played an important role in passing the 19th Amendment. Yeah, I was really struck by this chapter too um, about women's suffrage. We've talked about a little a little bit about this um, when we talked about the racism of Elizabeth Cady Stanton in our episode on the Seneca Falls Convention. And then in the, the episode on women's suffrage, we talked about the timeline and we talked about the segregation of the women's parade. Um, but I learned so much more from this chapter. So um, I have a passage from this chapter that I'd like to share too. Um, And this is about an interaction between Susan B. Anthony, who was white, and Ida B. Wells, who was black, and they were working together for women's suffrage at this point. Um, And Davis writes about this this period of history, and this is from the point of view of Ida B. Wells. So this is Davis quoting Ida B. Wells, quote, One morning, she, meaning Susan B. Anthony, had engagements in the city which would prevent her from using the stenographer whom she had engaged. And here I'll just throw in a stenographer was someone who like writes shorthand so you can just dictate your thoughts and the stenographer will write down your thoughts. So like a scribe. So um, Anthony remarked at the breakfast table that I could use the stenographer to help me with my correspondence sh- since she had to be away all morning and that she would tell her when she went upstairs to come in and let me dictate some letters to her. When I went upstairs to my room, I waited for her to come in. When she did not do so, I concluded she didn't find it convenient and went on writing my letters in longhand. When Miss Anthony returned, she came to my room and found me busily engaged. You didn't care to use my secretary, I suppose. I told her to come to your room when you came upstairs. Didn't she come? I said no. 
She said no more, but turned and went into her office. Within 10 minutes, she was back again in my room. The door being open, she walked in and said, well, she's gone. And I said, who? She said, the stenographer. I said, gone where? Why, she said, I went into the office and said to her, you didn't tell Miss Wells what I said about writing some letters for her? The girl said, no, I didn't. Well, why not? Then the girl said, it's all right for you, Miss Anthony, to treat Negroes as equals, but I refuse to take dictation from a colored woman. Indeed, said Miss Anthony. Then, she said, you needn't take any more dictation from me. Miss Wells is my guest, and any insult to her is an insult to me. So if that's the way you feel about it, you didn't, needn't stay any longer. End quote. Um, so I loved that passage. I'd never heard about that incident before. And Davis goes on to explain that Ida B. Wells loved and admired Susan B. Anthony throughout her life. But it's complicated because Wells did recognize, even though she loved Susan B. Anthony, and, and Anthony was so far ahead of a lot of women of her time, even that they were all friends with, but even Ida B. Wells says Anthony didn't do enough to make her personal fight against racism a public issue in the, the suffrage movement. Um, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass were very close friends, and they remained very close friends throughout their lives. But Ida B. Wells recorded a conversation where Susan B. Anthony told her, quote, in our conventions, he was the honored guest who sat on our platform and spoke at our gatherings. But when the Suffrage Association went to Atlanta, Georgia, knowing the feeling of the South with regard to Negro participation on equality with whites, I myself asked Mr. Douglas not to come. I did not want to subject him to humiliation and I did not want anything to get in the way of bringing the Southern white women into our suffrage association, end quote. And then Davis goes on to explain how Anthony wouldn't support black women who wanted to form a branch of the suffrage movement because racist Southern white women would withdraw their participation if black women were admitted. So Davis quotes Ida B. Wells again, saying that Susan B. Anthony had come to Wells and, and asked do you think I was wrong to exclude these black women? And Wells said, yes. She said, quote, I answered uncompromisingly, yes. For I felt that although she may have made gains for suffrage, she had also confirmed white women in their attitude of segregation, end quote. And there is written material from this time um, in history when black men had recently gained the right to vote, but no women had the right to vote. And so, it was an explicit stated goal of white supremacist men in the South that they wanted their wives to get the vote so that they could double their numbers at the ballot and exclude and kind of overpower the vote of the black community. And they wanted to get so they wanted to get white supremacist women voting and then deliberately suppress the black vote in whatever way they could. And this just made me sick mm -hmm. to read about because that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm, that's kind of a long passage, but my takeaway here is that, I mean, looking at this, this friendship between Ida B. Wells and Susan B. Anthony, and I just feel like white people, we need to constantly ask ourselves, do I privately disagree with racist policies or beliefs, but maybe at work, you know, when something racist is said, do I just stay silent and not speak up? 
Or are there certain groups at school or church or, you know, where people make racist jokes and I just kind of smile and go along with it so that I don't make waves? Or sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes we'll hear about public figures who like use all the right buzzwords in public, but then it turns out, you know, people who know them in their personal lives, people who color who actually know them will say, no, he's terrible in private. He totally like makes racist jokes and uses racist language and treats people unfairly. And I think that is really important for any listeners who are white to just be constantly interrogating ourselves and thinking is, do I have integrity? Is my behavior in private and in public consistent in that I am using, I'm making my anti-racist beliefs known in every part of my life and not just complicit in that system? I think that's what I took away from that interaction. And the funny thing, as you mentioned, um, I think even though that happened back then, it's still happening now that um, within those particular platforms and organizations, as far as integrity, and you know you see something that's not right, um, who's going to stand up to say that's not right? Mm-hmm. You know, And so that's why I wanted to mention is that many people have complained about Black people creating their own organizations. For example, Black Entertainment Television, also known as BET, if we were all created equal, it wouldn't be so apparent in the media or fashion or anything of that nature um, as far as Black people being left out. Even when it comes to the Grammys, Oscars, and other winning platforms, we are nominated, but unfortunately, we don't receive those trophies. So if we were included in those major platforms and organizations, there would be no reason for division. And so as you were saying that, it just made me think, even though those things happened back then, it's still going on now. And as you mentioned, mm-hmm. within those organizations, and I'm not sure if you heard about this, but H&M, and there's many companies that's done this, but H&M is one that comes to mind. There was a photo shoot of a little black boy yeah, it was a fashion shoot and it was either I live in the jungle or it was like a jigaboo. It was something of that nature. Ooh. And my mind, nobody wanted to stand up in that room to say that this isn't right. right. <laughs> like right. nobody, everybody just watched and allowed it to be published at that. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with that to where I don't even want to support H&M anymore. Yeah. It was a mm-hmm. monkey sweatshirt to make sure I put it out there correctly. It was a monkey sweatshirt. And I'm like, y'all just sat there and just watched and nobody in that room thought right. it was terrible. Like, it could have stopped there, but nobody right. stood up as far as integrity to say, okay, that's not what we need to be doing here. <laughs> All right. So another quote I would like to share is similar to the one we just t- spoke about. Women of color have always had the title of being a strong Black woman. These next couple of quotes that I'm going to share can kind of help us understand where that term derives from. This quote comes from Chapter 1, The Legacy of Slavery, Standards for a New Womanhood, page 5. Judged by the evolving 19th century ideology of femininity, which emphasized women's roles as nurturing mothers, and gentle companions and housekeepers for their husbands, Black women were practically anomalies, though. And so from the very beginning of the book, Angela Davis provided so many examples of Black women fighting for their family, households, and for their voices to be heard. 
There is one example about, about a black woman in slavery and how slave owners never exempted pregnant women and mothers from working in fields. Instead, the mothers would create a knapsack, which is a piece of coarse linen cloth to carry her child as she worked on this platform. Here is a quote from chapter one, page eight. Slave owners naturally sought to ensure that their breeders would bear children as often as biologically possible, but they never went so far as to exempt pregnant women and mothers with infant children from the work in the fields. While many mothers were forced to leave their infants lying on the ground near the area where they worked, some refused to leave them unattended and tried to work out to work at a normal pace with their babies on their backs. An ex-slave describes such a case on the plantation where he lived. Young women did not, like the others, leave her child at the end of the row, but had contrived a sort of rude knapsack made of piece of coarse linen cloth in which she fastened her child, which was very young, upon her back, and in this way carried it all day and performed her task at the home with the other people. Unquote. There is no cap to what a black woman can do. Even in slavery time, we did not want to abandon our children. We knew that work had to be done. But at the same time, we wanted to make sure that our kids were taken care of as well. And so pretty much, as I mentioned before, as a strong black woman, we have been fighting for years and we continue to do so to this day. That's amazing. I mean, in in context even of you talking about your own grandma and your own mom, mm-hmm. right? Like seeing that legacy of a woman, what I, I it just struck me how you described them that they, you know, they were working women, they were strong in all the areas of their lives, and they took care of their families and made their families feel loved and created a beautiful home and did all of that. And that's like the legacy of black women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so struck by this part too, this chapter where she talks about how during enslavement, Black women were treated just the same way that Black men were and expected to do all the work that the men did. And that reminded me of Sojourner Truth in her Ain't I a Woman speech where she's like, I'm as strong as any man because I've plowed and reaped and husked and chopped and mowed. Um, and she says, I- I'm a woman, but but she, had, she worked just as hard as a man. Um, so that's a really different history for Black women than, you know, the white Victorian stuck in a parlor doing needlework all day. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like just, it's just very, very different. Um, So we have two other quotes to finish out um, basically what we're talking about right now. And so quote, throughout this country's history, the majority of black women have worked outside their homes during slavery. Women toiled alongside their men in the cotton and tobacco fields. And when industry moved into the South, they could be seen in tobacco factories, sugar refineries, and even in lumber mills and on crews pounding steel for the railroads. Wow. In labor, slave women were equal of their men because they suffered a grueling sexual equality at work. They enjoyed a greater sexual equality at home in the slave quarters than they did their white sisters who were housewives. As a direct consequence of their outside work as free women, no less than slaves, housework 
has never been a central focus of Black women's lives. They have largely escaped the psychological and damage industrial capitalism inflicted on white middle-class housewives, whose alleged virtues were feminine weakness and wifely submissiveness. Black women could hardly strive for weakness. They had to become strong for their families and their communities needed their strength to survive. Unquote. Mm. That is amazing to me because mothers already mean the world, right? Like mothers make the world go around. I'm not married and I don't have any kids. But as you mentioned, just looking at the mothers around me and just looking how strong they are. Because at the end of the day, even though they may be housewives in certain households, they still have to support their husbands at that just to make sure that the family is doing what they need to do making sure that the husband stays strong and work where they need to. So he needs to be fed, you know, just making sure that that balance, because women have so much on their shoulders on a day to day. Mm. It's wild to me. So just reading that on top of what a woman, what women have to do day to day, but what black women had to actually encounter as being equals, not only am I going to have to slave out here. And as I mentioned, pounding steel I'm going to have to go home and still make sure the family and communities and everything, as far as like my strength to give, it still needs to be on 10 because I need to still be a support to everybody. Mm-hmm. That just, I, I'm sorry, I'm talking about this so much, but <laughs> it just, for it's, me, it hits hard. Mm-hmm. Me too. All right. So another quote I wanted to share is from chapter 13, quote, Like racism, sexism is one of the great justifications for high female unemployment rates. Many women are just housewives because in reality, they are unemployed workers. Cannot, therefore, the just housewife role be be most effectively challenged by demanding jobs for women on a level of equality with men and by pressing for the social services, childcare, for an example, and job benefits, maternity leaves, etc., which will allow more women to work outside the home. So I wanted to talk about this um, because of so much, right? Even though women had to work, doesn't mean that they had the same opportunity as men in the workforce. There are many challenges women face when going into the workforce. For an example, gender roles, work-family balance, lack of transport, and a lack of affordable care. It's unfortunate that those are challenges that we face, and at the same time, it is our reality. And so with those four, I kind of wanted to break those down just to give like an image of what women go through when it comes to the workforce and unemployment and gender equality and things of that nature in the workforce. So let's break it down. When it comes to transportation, all too often women are victims are being harassed and abused on public transportation. I was reading an article by Metro Magazine, and here are some statistics to think about. Quote, Verbal harassment was the most common form of harassment, with 41% experiencing obscene, harassing language, and 26% being subjected to sexual comments, unquote. 
I have always been nervous to ride public transportation, even before reading these statistics. And reading these articles, just doing more research about it, it makes me even more nervous uh, because I don't want to go through that and I don't feel protected riding public, uh, public transportation. When it comes to the lack of affordable childcare, in order to pay for childcare, you have to work. But if you don't acquire enough money, you won't be able to afford the bill. So according to the Business Insider, quote, overall women who are full-time year-round employees made 82.3 cents for every dollar men made in 2019, based on the median earning data from the Census Current Population Survey. That means women are paid 17.7% less than men, earning $10,157,000 less than men, unquote. If women aren't making enough to afford childcare, they're forced to stay at home to watch their kids. And that goes back to unemployment. Some families aren't fortunate to have family members watch their kids at work. And let's be honest, childcare isn't the cheapest. This ties into work-family balance as well. If a woman has a child and a, fa and a father is not present, the mother has to do what she has to do in order to survive for her and her children. I've had several conversations where other siblings, the older siblings, had to take care of their younger siblings while the mother had to tend to work. What is the mother supposed to do if her only option is to have her kids watch her kids? I actually had a conversation with a friend of mine. Uh, they was watching a movie and I forgot what the name was, but the kids were taken away because the mother, as far as CPS, looked at it as neglect. Even though her child was old enough to watch her kids, it was still considered neglect because she had to go to work. And it brought mm -hmm. tears to my eyes because it's so many situations like that. People don't have the resources. And so going back to the quote, it just reminds me of why, you know, women stay at home. They have to sacrifice so much, especially if they don't have a father in the household. So many things can come at you at one time. And it's just really unfortunate. And so on the other hand, um, if a husband and wife have a child, but the wife is forced to quit her dreams to support her husband as he works, this is where the male breadwinner comes into play. As mentioned earlier, men get paid more in the workforce. So why not have the women stay home to take care of the kids and the household? It's totally unfortunate, but this is the world that we live in. I'm not married as mentioned, but I can appreciate those stories where the parents sacrifice certain things so everyone can win. You know, now we see it's real popular where we have the stay-at-home fathers. And I love seeing that because it gives a chance for the wife to do what she needs to do. And maybe the wife be the breadwinner. We didn't see that often, you know, back in the day. I mean, at all. It's not often. <laughs> but we didn't see that at all. So for me to see that balance of, you know, let me support you, honey. You know, I had the first 10 years. You go ahead and take it. And I'll stay here with the kids. I just love that support. And I think that's important for a balance in the household. Yeah. I love that you brought that quote out, Brianna, and that explanation too, because I was just thinking actually how the title is Women, Race, and Class. Mm -hmm. And the, and I was thinking, oh, the quotes I chose were kind of more about women and race, but I didn't mention class. And you just kind of brought everything together in that quote that, that talks about the struggles of like real families. And, um, and so talking about that intersection, I think is really important. Indeed. So 
as we wrap up the episode, um, what would you say is an important takeaway from this book for you? So I have so many takeaways from the book. I promise we could be here for hours (laughs) because (laughs) I've in the past um, have conversation about the isms, um, classism, racism, and sexism. So this one, as far as giving me a history lesson, made it just worth the while for me to just dive in deeper, right? So let's talk about um, Angela Davis and her story. We played a clip of it earlier, but I can really appreciate her confidence and standing up for not only what she believed in, but what was right. We see it all the time. I'm not going to say any names, <laughs> but people stand up for certain things and they are absolutely wrong. But they have all the confidence in the world to say, I'm going to lead you guys this way. We're going to make America great and this, 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 and that. And it's like, okay, where are your morals, your values, your integrity to follow with what you're saying? And so Mm -hmm. for me, when I look at Angela Davis, I mean, she just really wanted equality, like for everybody to treat each other the same. And that's what we're supposed to do. You know, the golden rule in the Bible, treat others the way you want to be treated. And so when I think about her story in general, I just love the foundation. She stood for equal rights, political change, self-esteem, and loving yourself as is. So many people criticize Afros and Black power as if we were the violent ones, but at the same time, others did everything in their power to silence our voices. If that meant killing us, putting us in jail, keeping us from voting, and so much more. How are we the violent ones when we just want to be heard and noticed as just a human being? Women, race, and class really gave me a deep study of how strong Black people are despite the kickback we receive from other races. It makes me a proud Black woman to know how creative we are, how bold we are, and the strength we have to fight through whatever comes at us. Mm, That's beautiful, Brianna. Thank you so much. I've so loved this conversation with you. I'm, again, so, so grateful that you put this book on the reading list. And I'm really grateful that you and I got to discuss it together. And I just thank you for the time you put in and for the everything you shared today. Thank you so much. And I just want to say thank you for having me. I really, I think it was like... Brianna, get into Angela Davis. And when you sent the list out, I was like, okay, confirmation. Let's make it happen. So I'm just very, very thankful for you and everything that you're doing. Like beyond this episode, I've learned so much just learning from your friends. I love the dynamic between you and your daughters. I'm just Mm -hmm. loving everything about Amy. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Oh, you're a sweetheart. Thank you. Thank you, Brianna. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode. I'm so excited because next week on Breaking Down Patriarchy, we'll be reading another text from 1981 by another Black woman author. This is the beloved professor and social activist, Bell Hooks. Her book, Ain't I a Woman?, which is, of course, a reference to Sojourner Truth's speech, continues the conversation about the intersection of race and gender and class in America in the early 1980s. I really highly recommend reading the whole book. Just like Women, Race, and Class, Ain't I a Woman was just mind-blowing for me. So I really recommend getting a copy if you can and reading it. But even if you don't have a chance to read it, it'll still be a fantastic conversation and you can get the TLDR from our conversation. So join us next time for Bell Hooks, Ain't I a Woman on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.